Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a reporter for the corporate team in Houston, and this is the latest installment of our Competitive Intelligence Podcast series. This month, we're looking at the trajectory of shale production in North America as oil prices steadily rise and companies start turning the taps back on. Joining me today to talk about this is our head of competitor intelligence, Casey Merriman. Hey, Casey. Hey, Luke. How are you? I'm good. And we've also got our Houston bureau chief, Noah Brenner. How's it going, Noah? I'm doing well. Great. All right. So as America and other parts of the world start to reopen their economies and get back to work, we're starting to see what has been artfully dubbed leakage in the production curtailments that were put in place across the U.S. shale patch over the last couple of months. So first, Casey, uh, let's let's define exactly what we mean when we talk about leakage. We're, we're seeing some production start to come back on, some shut-in wells get restarted, and just kind of a general confidence in the current oil rally. Uh, but it's not exactly the beginning of a return to full activity to pre-COVID levels, right? Right, you're you're exactly correct, and there's a really key distinction that we need to make when we when we talk and think about leakage. So, if we're talking about curtailments. What we specifically mean by that are price-driven uh, shut-ins or a throttling back of output from a set of wells. Okay, so in the U.S. onshore, uh, after kind of a slow start responding to the the major price decline that kicked off in March, we have seen curtailments tailments come in with full effect, right? Uh, there are estimates upward of you know, 3.8 million barrels a day that has been curtailed in light of the price collapse. However, this production should not be seen as permanently damaged, by and large. It should not be seen as something that is going to be sustained offline for a long period of time. I think kind of the right analogy is, you know, think of kind of a torrential river that's being held back by a dam, right? And any any kind of hole that might present itself you're going to see that water rush there. And that's essentially what we're starting to see. Um, on, on the economic side, prices and that are around, I guess, $34 at this point, um, once they've crossed that mid-20s, price point, uh, it started to become economic to reconsider turning back on whale, on wells. Certainly over $30, the economics of this work. Keep in mind, you're talking about just the literal economics of turning a well off or on, not say sustained prices needed for a company or the industry, right? So mm. what, what you're seeing is that because we have prices where they are, any kind of opening there is from a demand standpoint, anytime uh, companies are seeing the ability to sell that oil, that oil is coming back to market. So uh, mm -hmm. for one example, we have seen uh, that one of the major midstream companies that has a lot of infrastructure in the Midland Basin and the Permian uh, said in early May that they were already seeing 25% of volumes return. You know, so that means that curtailments lasted a couple weeks at most. So f for sure, the, the, the key is that demand is still extremely depressed. Uh, re refinery runs remain uh, heavily constrained. There is not a lot of holes in the dam 
yet, right? But Mm -hmm. the way that these curtailments will work is as that demand returns, the oil will be there kind of at its doorstep ready to ready to turn on. And it's really important to kind of distinguish that from activity levels before kind of COVID, which is drilling and completions. That that is a kind of a works under a different timeline, a different subset, and is is not kind of um, behind the dam, so to speak, like these curtailments are. Right. Okay. Yeah. So Noah, I mean, by now, almost every oil company, large and small, has cut their 2020 spending plans by anywhere from, say, you know, 20% to 50% or even more. Uh, and so if oil does keep ticking up, uh, as it has for the past couple of weeks, w- will these companies be able to keep those CapEx commitments or, you know, continuing this dam analogy? I mean, are, could we start to see that the dam really start to burst and a more rapid ramp up in capital spending for drilling and completions, um, you know, getting those closer to the level that we were expecting back in January? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's really where maybe you're going to see the the biggest difference in uh, in shale, the biggest difference in the way that the industry is going to to act and react and, and interact with the market. You know, in the past, we would have expected uh, if, if oil prices ticked up for for companies to to sort of reanimate their their activity in lockstep, if not really in in excess of of the price uh, signals that they might be getting. You know, they would have been able to outspend cash flows. They would have had access to capital markets, either through debt or equity, um, and, and been able to take all of this money and put it to work. You know, at this point, we don't see, we see shale as being very responsive to oil prices, um, you know, more so to the downside than the upside. Um, but, you know, so if if prices come back, I would expect, you know, I think our, our house view is that we would expect companies generally to hold the line on these CapEx cuts. Um, you know, perhaps, we would see maybe some incremental wells knocked out towards the end of the year as they kind of firm up their 2021. Um, but really, it's not going to be the, you know, shale doesn't have the ability to to accelerate rapidly like it did in the past. Um, the money's just not there. The investors are, are you know, kind of the, the entire strategy has really shifted to one that doesn't allow them to, um, to, to, spent. Um, and so I think that, you know, as we get closer to January, sure, I think we'll see activity levels tick up. Companies are already messaging that to a certain extent. Um, but we're just not going to see the the type of kind of wild swings that, that we might have seen in the past. Hmm. Well, this whole experience has kind of jump-started the discussion of, you know, the death of the shale industry. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a debt-fueled, capital-intensive business that has you know, perhaps seen its best days and it's basically all downhill from here. And, you know, basically shale has peaked. Uh, so Casey, you know, did we just witness the death of shale as we know it? Or do you think this crisis has forced more of a transformation in how companies approach their business strategies? Or are companies just going to go back to the drill baby drill mindset, come what may? Yeah, I think it's really important to figure out how you want to define shale. And so if you say, as we know it, it was already undergoing a transformation. It was moving away from the the drill baby drill mindset that saw shale reach 
incredible heights and really uh, stun many in how it was able to recover from, say, the 2014-2016 downturn um, and lead just enormous non-OPEC supply growth. Because uh, what we were seeing was really this capital discipline. And, and it was, from for all intents and purposes, it was holding. You were seeing companies really be forced to keep their their reinvestment dollars within cash flows. And then if there was any kind of, say, excess cash available, that was meant to go back to shareholders in the form of dividends. And it was meant to repay debt, right? Because as you say, it's an enormous, it's been an enormously debt-fueled industry. And so what you're seeing with the oil price downturn, right, is that that bucket of cash flows available for reinvestment is much smaller. And so I think we have to really, as Noah really importantly pointed out, as as we see a recovery unfold, shale's potential will be dictated by the oil price in a way that it really hasn't before. So, you know, the death of shale, okay, as the growth vehicle that we had had seen several years before, yes, that those days are gone, but they were already on their way out. Uh, what you're more likely to see is kind of a, this transformation, as you say, toward a kind of more self-funding shale that has to work within its means. It will be, it is going it is not going to move into indefinite decline, right? It is going to hit a trough. Production is going to be able to recover and grow from that point. But you know, we think it is very likely that from an overall net output perspective that we have likely seen peak shale hit. Hmm. Um, Noah, I guess just another way to look at this um, is just what are the major producers that, you know, the, the Exxons, the Chevrons and some of the big independents um, feeling about shale right now? Are they still confident that their previous strategy of that shale is the best place to put a dollar? Uh, does that still hold it is, or has the commitment to shale waned at all? Sure. Well, let's, you know, as we're looking at that, let's maybe start with super majors and uh, or the majors and, and those that are invested there. You know, Exxon and Chevron certainly are the have the two largest positions in the Permian Basin among those. Uh, and as well, you know, BP and, and Shell are, are trying to build up those positions uh, and that part of their portfolio. But I mean, by and large, you know, we've seen these immense cuts um, from the likes of, of Exxon and Chevron to their capital spending. And a lot of that has been centered on the Permian Basin. That's led a lot of people to sort of, you know, to believe that perhaps they, you know, that was the least um, attractive part of their portfolio. And, and really what you're seeing is Shale acting and performing the way that these companies needed it to perform. Uh, if we look at, say, capital spending trends through past downturns, uh, particularly around you know, Chevron, um, who has who was in the midst of these, these major mega projects, and, and they weren't able to cut spending um, in lockstep with oil prices in the way that we've seen during this downturn. And so you, know, you can make that argument that, that the reason that we're able, that these companies are able to respond um, in such a definitive manner to the current crisis that, that they're seeing in commodities markets is because they have um, they have the short cycle shale spending. They 
can be, you know, there's been so much emphasis on how quickly can shale ramp up. Um, the idea that you can just turn the turn off your shale operations is actually what's equally as important in the downturn. And so I think, you know, we've seen Exxon and Chevron remain committed. We'll have to see if they still make those million barrel a day out of the, uh, you know, out of the Permian types of targets that they've set out for themselves. But even the likes of, say, a BP and a Shell, they've certainly cut back on their activity, but they haven't, you know, we haven't seen them um, back away from shale really as an asset class at all. And I think they do see that it's it's something that they can toggle up and down at a time, you know, in a future where oil prices will probably be more volatile and probably be lower. Now, if we take that the step down, that larger independence um, as, as, a, as a peer group, you know, I think there we still see the same um, appetite, the same commitment to shale. The only thing I would point out there is that they don't have a choice by and large. Um, these are companies that have sold off international operations. They've sold off conventional operations. They've really focused their um, portfolios down to shale with a few exceptions. Um, here is where it is kind of interesting, where we are starting to see some of the large independents like a Conoco or perhaps a Noble um, or an Apache um, really also kind of try to shift the narrative with investors towards, hey, look, Okay, yeah, we're primarily a shale company, but we have this other uncon- or this other conventional maybe type of asset, uh, whether that's Conoco in Alaska or say Apache uh, with their Suriname exploration success. So they're kind of trying to shift the 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 focus over to these other things and and look like a more diversified company. Um, but let's be honest here; these companies sold out for shale. Um, they do not; they're not in a financial position to be able to reposition their portfolios in such a way that they could go out and acquire you know, good in the money conventional assets. And so they are as committed to shale as, as they were before the downturn, but that's simply because they can't, they don't have another choice. They can't do anything else <laughs> at this mm-hmm. point um, as, as a peer group. And, and certainly sure there are some exceptions, but as a peer group, the U S independents are, and probably will always be shale players. Yeah. So Casey, taking this a bit more kind of macro, does all this, you know, just kind of this continued commitment, whether it's uh, forced or not, does this does this mean that shale will continue to be a thorn in the side of OPEC or has the somewhat unprecedented cooperation between the U.S. and OPEC that seems to have taken shape over the course of this crisis mean that the shale producers in OPEC, you know, have found a way to play nice with each other? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to uh, understand what the nature of that cooperation has been. You know, there at the end of the day, the U.S. did not deliver any kind of mandated or kind of high-level government cut, and therefore its sticking power, as we just discussed earlier, is going to be price-driven. And that means that in any recovery, it's contribution to global efforts to rebalance the market uh, is going to be fraught and it's going to be messy, uh, right? And I think really where shale has some very genuine potential to be a thorn in OPEC side in these coming months is, you know, if what we're seeing is a, a genuine recovery, um, you know, we're seeing demand come back, but it's it's still a bit you know weak, right? I mean, we have we have yet to see what the global economy will really look like on the other end of of this these lockdowns. So, if the demand is 
is lagging a bit. Um, but we see prices at levels where shale can, in some form or fashion, get back to work. You know, as we said, not maybe pre-COVID levels, but it it starts it starts drilling again. It starts completing wells. It starts to kind of plan its own recovery. That could really mean that OPEC's ability to drain these massive global inventories that have built in, in recent weeks could be strained, right? And then so long as that kind of overhang exists in the market, then there will be a cap on what oil prices can do. And on one hand, that will limit what shale can do, of course, but it just means that the that inventory draw process could take longer than than you know OPEC members would like to see and that puts a lot of strain on them because they're voluntarily cutting significant amount of their production to try to get rebalancing in sooner and so absolutely shale can continue to be a thorn in the side, even if it is in a bit different way than we've seen, right? It's not because shale's growing a million barrels a day, year over year type of thorn, but it it, it just could slow the market's ability to clear all the extra oil that's sloshing around out there. Hmm. And what about going in the other direction, you know, just with the, the short cycle nature of shale and just e- eagerness to bring production back online? Does this mean, I mean, even if it is the dam hasn't quite broken yet, d- mm-hmm. does this mean that we're going to be doing this all over again in six months or a year? You know, if oil is back in the mid 40 to $50 range by, say, midsummer, will U.S. producers be able to maintain this discipline and somehow avoid just kind of shooting themselves in the foot by flooding the market again? Yeah, that's always, always the question with shale. I mean, so I think, it, you know, okay, say these curtailments come back, okay, that will help stabilize production. But as Noah said, I mean, we've a drilling and completion activity at the levels that $35 oil requires uh, pushes shale into decline. I mean, it cannot avoid that. And, and it's a fairly significant decline, right? Um, so I think if you start to get that kind of price recovery, what we have heard from companies is that they want they want to have some certainty in those prices before they would really start going out and say contracting new completion crews, contracting rigs, right? They want to see Mm -hmm. some sustainability in those prices. So there will be some, some hesitation on that. And then I think it's kind of important to keep in mind that even, you know, a $45 oil price, which would give the industry lots of breathing room from a, just a sustainability standpoint does not really allow it to kind of grow on an outright basis. Mm. So there are a number of things that would kind of have to be ticked before you would see a real kind of eagerness to get back at it. And, and I, and just given the, the overhang, like, as I said, kind of in global inventories and, and, and that sort of thing, it would be really hard to see that happening in the immediate term. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, you know, just I think Casey just made a really, really important point about how shale is going to interact with with global inventories and this idea that, I mean, I guess, I think we could see shale shoot itself in the foot in slow motion, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> in that, you know, so by not allowing these inventories to clear, 
you sort of stay in this situation with this massive overhang that that's keeping prices down. And then, you know, I think it, what's important is is this is going to be a demand driven market um, moving forward through you know the end of this year as as we try to understand what's going on with with coronavirus across the world. You know, as company or as countries are um, unlocking and locking down, um, and, and so that if, if we aren't able to clear kind of the, that storage overhang um, and then all of a sudden we see economic activity drop down and I mean, that becomes a really big problem where, you know, we get back to the types of worries about storage filling, you know, if, if producers aren't able to kind of toggle their production in lockstep with any demand changes, we all of a sudden get back to this, you know, extreme price pressure that we saw um, WTI prices going negative, which, you know, a, a, essentially a kind of a blip, but um, where you kind of have these real physical or disconnects between paper and physical markets, and we see very, very low spot pricing. And so I think we need to adjust the way we think about, um, we define shooting themselves in the foot for shale. Um, <laughs> so maybe they won't do it in a conventional way, but I think shale's very capable of shooting itself in the foot again, <laughs> and the rest of the oil market with it. <laughs> in unconventional ways. In, so a, in unconventional slow motion ways, yeah, they're just they're, <laughs> um, a creative bunch. <laughs> okay, so just to wrap up, uh, you know, there's of course plenty of predictions out there for where oil prices could end up in the short to medium term, and, and really, it's anyone's guess. But I guess what is a scenario that could support, say, a doubling of the current price in in the next couple of years, something approaching seventy dollars a barrel, and then what is the impact on shale if crude never really does? crack 50 bucks again and stays mired in this sort of 30 to 40 dollar range. Yeah, I mean the the question that the industry has faced for the past several years, right, is this idea of of a supply gap, right? That if you look at global upstream capital spending post 2014, it just took an enormous dive and yes, there have been incredible cost savings, you know, what you can get for a dollar today versus what you could get for it in 2014. I mean, it's light years difference. So you don't need to spend at those same absolute levels. But but still, if you look at just the amount of money going into production capacity outside the United States um, in the big mega projects that are, are critical to to other supply sources, it really has taken a huge hit and it has been slow, slow to come back on. And and with the CapEx cuts that we were talking about earlier, you know, those are not uh, confined to shale, right? We have seen uh, significant reductions in planned spending globally. Um, and that is from these kind of already austere levels. And so there is certainly a, a case to be made that in a couple years time that that the this underinvestment comes home, right? That, you know, if we could really get a global demand kind of back to where it was and then the economy is strong enough to see, you know, year on year growth, you know, several years on, essentially the global economic machine is kind of running full force. Um, and we know that shale is kind of going to be limited to its cash flows, right? So so even in an upturn, it's going to have some limitations on what can be reinvested. There's going to be some limitations on the number of companies that are still around. You could make the case that the world is undersupplied and that would support a higher oil price. And will shale respond 
absolutely. But if it doesn't respond to the magnitude that it has in the past, that could lead to higher oil prices being able to kind of, I guess, be sustained without shale kind of raining on the parade as it has the past half decade or so. <laughs> um, so, but then you could, yeah. So if you take it the other way though, okay, say through a combination of supply, you know, maybe weaker demand, uh, maybe even peaking demand that remains to be seen and, and prices kind of don't really crack. You know, I think the way to, to look at it is shale is, Go shale is going back to its a new kind of core, and that's true for both the number of the companies that are involved in developing shale and what is actually being developed. Right, this, the, the core has always been something that's been talked about in shale. Right, there's the top acreage, the most economic acreage, the top plays, the most economic plays, you know, the top companies, um, and what what it will essentially become is it will retrench to the very best spots, the very best plays, the very best companies. And in a lot of ways, uh, it, it makes what remains of shale actually more sustainable, right? It's more likely to not be so leveraged. It's likely to have strong operators that can can weather volatility and weather cycles. But um, it you know, it it means that the U.S. kind of remains a core source of supply that is kind of critical to the market, but it cannot necessarily remain a core source of supply growth year on, year mm -hmm. out. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think this idea, you know, there's been uh, there was talk. This idea kind of emerged around the idea of a shale ban uh, or a band um, in terms of mm -hmm. between forty and sixty dollars. That's oil prices were going to kind of remain range bound because, you know, below um, you know, basically as soon as oil prices hit forty, um, you know, on the up swinging up, um, shale was going to start drilling again, and and you know there would be some room to grow, but pretty much by the time you hit sixty. Uh, you know, companies would be flooding the market with new supply. And, you know, to me, I think there's still a, a very good argument that that, that shale band remains in place, um, but simply that it has gone up. Um, and instead of maybe 40 to $60, you know, the industry doesn't, shale industry doesn't work at $40. Um, you know, maybe that's 50 to 70. Um, but at the same point, I don't think, uh, shale's not going to sit on the sidelines if oil prices hit. 70, 80 bucks a barrel or, or upwards of that. I mean, there's there's just simply uh, too much money to be made. It's too uh, easy to bring forward uh, shale production, you know, fairly rapidly. Um, you know, these are these companies are are shale's not dead, <laughs> um, and these companies are are not going to to give up those types of economic opportunities. And so, you know, it is still responsive, but it's responsive in a different way. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, I think we're going to have to leave it there for now. Uh, thank you very much, guys. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. For more coverage on how the shell sector is reacting to the current trend in oil prices and many other topics, please check out our website at energyintel.com. My name is Luke Johnson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>